2017 was one of the best performing years for emerging market equities on record with the index returning in excess of 37% in US dollar terms for the year and Coronation's global emerging markets equity strategy returning in excess of 40% in US dollar terms for the year. Hi everyone, I'm Kirshni Shotaram, Global Head of Institutional Business at Coronation and joining me here today is Sahail Suleiman, co-manager of the Coronation Emerging Markets Equity Portfolio, to talk about the outlook for the asset class and just some of the good investment opportunities that we are currently seeing in emerging markets. Thanks very much for joining me, Sahail. Thanks, Kirshni. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, if we look at just the eye-watering returns that we've had over the past year, can you drill down just in terms of Coronation's portfolio? What were the key drivers behind the returns that we achieved? But also maybe importantly, what are the generic drivers behind the general rally in the emerging markets that we saw? I think it's it's important to note that last year's excellent performance of the market uh, followed a couple of years which were quite tough, particularly in comparison to developed markets which have outperformed over longer periods since probably late 2010 to 2011. So there was probably an element of catch-up involved. And additionally, we saw some of the big emerging markets really struggle over the last couple of years. So countries like Brazil, for example, had a tough couple of years driven by macroeconomic environment, but also because valuations are quite high going into that, that period as a result of commodity prices having been elevated for a long period of time. So I think a large part of what you saw last year was a bit of that reversing itself. Um, and if you just look at some of the picks that came through on our portfolios, which areas do you think that, you know, probably added the biggest contributions? Well, I mean, the one that added the most to the portfolio would be very familiar to South African listeners would be NASPERS. It was the largest position in the portfolio for the duration of last year and has been one of our, I would say, top five positions we don't own Tencent, but the large position in Naspa is more than offset uh, not owning Tencent. And as you're aware, Naspa you know, was up something like 90% in dollars last year. So that contributed tremendously to performance. And then, you know, similar to that, many of the Chinese internet stocks did quite well last year. So we own a, a business called 58.com, which is a, a classified advertiser in China that was up 150% last year, having fallen 60, 70% the previous year. We had been building up our position as it became cheaper and cheaper. And as you would naturally expect, last year when it was appreciating, we were reducing the position. The other Chinese name worth mentioning is JD.com. We'll speak a little bit more about that later, I think. But this is an Amazon-type business, a e-commerce retailer in China. Uh, that one was up 65% last year almost and was a top five position, almost doubled in price really from low 20s up until over $45 a share. So that was a big contributor performance. And then I think finally, the last one worth mentioning in terms of one we did well out of was the Brazilian education stock called Estacio. That was up probably double over the course of the year. And this is despite a merger between itself and another business falling through. The share price doubled from June till the end of December and it was a, you know, a very big contributor performance. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say a lot of the returns that we generated, all the returns we generated was substantially from stock picks that have been part of the portfolio for some time. 
companies that have been covering and that we had meaningful stakes in. But before we actually maybe drill down in terms of how we've positioned the portfolio going forward, let's just take a macro look at, um, you know, what we can expect in terms of growth from the various emerging market economies over the medium to the long term and what some of those drivers of growth will actually be. Sure. I mean, I think if you look at the drivers of growth in emerging markets, they're quite different from developed markets. By any measure, the vast majority of emerging markets are quite underpenetrated in terms of per capita consumption of what we take for granted in everyday life here, at least in parts of South Africa. If you look at most household personal care items, uh, vehicle sales, access to financial services, mortgages, throughout emerging markets, they're really at a fraction of what you see in developed markets. So naturally, what you would expect is that as people become wealthier, they would consume more, they would demand more access to credit. And this really has a feed-through effect for all the industries that serve these markets. The banks will see large growth in their loan books and credit card books and mortgages. The likes of Unilever and the equivalents in in these many markets uh, would see increased demand for these services. People would start consuming more premium products and become more brand conscious over time. Uh, the the consumption of luxury goods would increase significantly, as we've seen in China. So, so people are aspirational, uh, and, that, and that's what you see come through quite a bit. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think if you look at what happened in, in Europe in the post-war period from the 50s, 60s, 70s, one of the old Marshall Plan uh, times, uh, that sort of growth, uh, the increase in per capita income, rising aspirations, particularly in, in the Western world, I think you're seeing a lot of that coming through in emerging markets right now. I mean, they want to do what they see on on television. They want to live the American dream uh, for the most part. And, and I don't see any structural reason why that shouldn't be the case. There's a lot of talk about uh, slowed growth in China. China looking at a 5% growth rate, which is materially lower than what they've had in the past. But it's by no means anything to sneeze at. What impact at all do you think that's likely to have in other emerging markets? And then I suppose... We've got a healthy exposure to China and the portfolio. And how do we consider our Chinese exposure in the context of a lower growth rate? Uh, I think there's probably two or three aspects to this that are worth discussing. I think firstly, you hit the nail on the head. 5% growth is really nothing to be too upset about. And ultimately, it's because the base effect is so much bigger. 10 years ago, when China was growing at 10%, the actual value of dollar GDP that it was adding every year was less than it is adding today at, at 5% growth. As a country or a economy or a business becomes bigger, uh, a smaller growth rate still adds the same amount or more in terms of absolute dollar GDP. And that's quite important. And with a stagnant population, GDP per capita is, is rising at a, at a decent rate. Uh, so I wouldn't be too concerned about a Chinese relative slowdown compared to history. I, I think the absolute amount of growth is, is quite significant. And then secondly, I think some of the other emerging markets which historically have lagged uh, are taking up slack. And I think the biggest and most important of them probably is India. India for years grew at low single digits at a time that China was growing at 8 to 10% per year. And today India can probably grow between 5 and 8% per annum uh, for foreseeable future given lower commodity prices, given rising per capita incomes and increased aspiration, as I mentioned earlier, and also a bit of reform that's taking place at the government level there. So that'll do a lot for growth for EMs as a whole. And some countries will benefit from falling commodity prices. Some countries will be hurt by them. So in a country like China, which uh, 
which is a big commodity importer, they're hurt by rising commodity prices. It raises the cost of construction, for example, and a lot of steel goes into building all this property that's gone up in China over the last couple of decades. Uh, but a country like India, which is a large commodity importer, or smaller ones like Turkey, for example, which run massive current account deficits uh, when oil prices are high, they will benefit from falling commodity prices. So I, I think there's an equilibrium at play here. Some benefit, some lose out. But overall, I think the biggest structural drivers of rising wealth levels will be very positive for emerging markets as a whole. And maybe let's just take it, uh, drill down into how we've positioned the portfolio. Now, we look at things on a bottom-up basis, so we try and pick individual stocks. So maybe um, if you can talk us through why we look at individual stocks and, and not index general exposure as a starting point. Global investors are used to having an investable universe that has very decent companies by and large. So if you're buying a, a global index... Uh, you you could get away with it because many of the big businesses are, are great businesses which you'd want to own over a 10, 15, 20-year period, the likes of Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook today, General Electric many years ago. All these businesses have been long-term winners, but I don't think that is the case with emerging markets. If you look at the index 10 or 15 years ago, it was very commodity-dominated, uh, very dominated by state-owned businesses, petrol refineries, Chinese banks, telcos. And whilst that has reduced over time, there's a lot more better companies in the top 15, 20 stocks in the in index, you still don't have what we consider to be a, a very good portfolio of stocks if you buy an index tracking product. So that's why it's very important to own the right businesses with good long-term earnings growth prospects and buy them at a reasonable price if you want to get good returns from emerging markets over the long term. And it's not no different to how we've done things in South Africa for over 20 years, uh, and we apply the same methodology and thinking process to emerging markets and also to our, our global portfolios. So maybe just looking at some of the big uh, exposures, big stocks that uh, we've got in the portfolio, where are we seeing good opportunity at the moment? Sure. I, I mentioned that Naspers was the biggest stock in the portfolio. We have been reducing it in, re in recent months because it did so well last year, but it's still the biggest stock in the portfolio. Some of the other big names in the portfolio, which are worth mentioning, uh, and we'll we'll take a look at a few from different industries and in different countries. Uh, JD.com, I mentioned in passing earlier. The Amazon of China. It's it's yeah, it's the Amazon of China. It does pretty much what Amazon does, and it's very different from Alibaba, which is more of a marketplace where third parties can advertise their products and they make money from advertising and commissions. Whereas with JD.com, they actually have the inventory, and you know their job is to be able to offer you the best price and good delivery and also make sure that they control the relationship with the customer. So you have, you're dealing with JD.com directly. If something goes wrong, you know who you, you have recourse to. Uh, and that's very different from the Alibaba business. It doesn't make Alibaba a poor business. We did own it in the portfolio, but from a valuation perspective, we found it a lot less attractive. So JD is a, a big position in our portfolio. It also has a web uh, cloud services business, uh, much like Amazon does. And then I think uh, over the next five to six years, you'll see quite significant increases in profitability because it's in, been investing so heavily for the last couple of years that, that it's very rarely made a, made a profit, much like Amazon has done in the US. Another business worth mentioning, which is also a top five position, is Croton. That's a private education player in Brazil. From a South African perspective, private education is quite topical. We've seen uh, a lot of disruption in our public universities. We have a substantial shortfall in, in spaces in universities in this country and, and Brazil is no different. 
It's a massive market which produces millions of graduates from school every year and just doesn't have enough space in public universities for them. The private sector has historically filled this role. 15 years ago, Brazil had 2 million people studying tertiary education. Today, there's 8 million people. That's a massive increase in the size of the market, and the private sector has really driven it. They've been incentivized by the government to do so. There's some there's tax breaks uh, in return for scholarships, and it's a very attractive business because the larger you become, the more recognized you become, the lower cost you can run your business at, uh, but also the more willing people are to come to your university because it's more recognized in the marketplace. And Croton is, is the market leader in, in this regard. It's very attractive. It trades at less than 12 times earnings and in a you know, and valuations are reasonably high in, in many other parts of the market that for us is, is very attractive. I mean, what I've always found interesting about Croton, especially from a South African perspective and things that we can understand and learn, is the fact that the private partnership has been a significant part of, of the success factor, but also how the demand for a private tertiary education has been consistently high and that the reward factor to individuals of getting a degree in terms of the salaries and the jobs that they can get is so high versus global levels. Yes, that's definitely the case. Uh, I think it's not unexpected. You know, in countries with a very high proportion of college graduates, the returns from doing a college degree will proportionally be lower. And so if you go to a place like North America, US, Canada, Western Europe, you have a relative surplus of highly skilled labor. And you also have a high cost of going to university unless there's massive subsidies from the government. So your payoff from doing a degree is decent, but it's not necessarily life-changing. Whereas if you go to a place like Brazil, where you know less than 20% of people have got a tertiary uh, degree, there's a massive improvement in potential earnings over a lifetime by getting a university degree. And it's very interesting because the, the business model is quite different from what you find even in South Africa. But definitely compared to North America or Western Europe, most people who don't get into a public university after they graduate from high school generally don't have the money to go to university immediately. They go and spend a few years working as uh, bank tellers and sales assistant in a, in a fashion store. And as they build up a little bit of money, then when the aspiration becomes quite high for them, they go to university, they still continue to work during the day and they study at night. And that gives them obviously the money to pay for their fees along the way. So I think the whole business model is very different from what we're used to. And, and the very high payoff from getting a degree in Brazil is why it continues to grow so strongly. In, in Brazil, the payoff over a person's lifetime is probably around two to three times more than what they would have expected to earn had they not got a degree, which is amongst the highest in the OECD study group that we've looked at. And then you did mention uh, that you do expect India to pick up some of the growth slack in emerging markets. Do we have any Indian exposure in the portfolio and maybe just walk us through what company names that we found with valuation has been compelling? I mean, India has got some great businesses. In fact, some of the best run businesses in emerging markets that we've come across have historically been in India and in the management teams of the, the creme de la creme businesses there are really good. The growth prospects for earnings are very good. Unfortunately, what we found is that valuations tend to reflect that. I think uh, many emerging market funds gravitate towards quality and this has pushed up valuations for the Indian businesses significantly. And then secondly, there is an element of trapped capital because of the difficulty of getting money out of India for domestic uh, institutions. And so that money ends up in the stock market. And so the you know, very liquid 
well regarded names tend to trade at very high valuations. So I mean, when you say very high valuations, it's like forty times earnings. Those are yes. kind of eye watering. I mean, you get a paint business trading on thirty five times forward earnings, and, and I mean, if it's growing earnings at fifty percent per annum for the next ten years, it might well be worth owning in the portfolio. But but many of these businesses are growing earnings at sort of mid double digits, ten, fifteen, twenty percent at most, which doesn't really give you margin of safety. One bad year can have a massive impact on on the rating that the market attaches to these businesses. So we've tended to avoid them. So when you look at what we have in the portfolio at the moment, it's predominantly in financial services in either banks or mortgage providers, because here you're buying a structurally underpenetrated industry, also growing, or the companies themselves are growing their books at 20% per annum, and they're trading on between 12 and 15 times earnings, which is quite attractive. So you're getting almost the same or higher growth as you're getting in a Unilever type business in India, but you're getting it at a third of the multiple. And then, I mean, one of the big things about emerging markets living in South Africa, which we know all too well, is volatile currencies, currencies that move up and down on sharp macroeconomic events or news. How do you go about thinking about currency exposure in the portfolio and managing the portfolio to try and limit the extent of short-term or longer-term losses due to currency movements? Yes, I mean, that's a very important part of our investment process. I mean, the last thing you want to do is find a stock that doubles in domestic currency and the currency falls 75%, and then therefore you actually end up worse off. And we do think about things in dollar terms. It's the only way you can compare the attractiveness of a Brazilian business priced in Riai to a Chinese business priced in Remimbi. Now, without getting too technical, really what we try and work out are long-term fair values today for the various currencies uh, based on relative prices, current account, and a whole bunch of other technical factors. But simplistically, you know, we think the RAND is worth 15 to the dollar, and that's the fair value. And today the RAND is trading at 12. Then a South African stock with what would ordinarily be quite reasonable upside, we would have to adjust down into this you know, dollar like-for-like upside to decide whether to own it in the portfolio. And then when we compare what stocks, all the various stocks in our coverage list, uh, whether they go into the portfolio or not will depend on the sort of dollar upside that they offer. And, and by and large, we've, we've got this mostly right uh, over the last 10 years. We, we avoided the likes of Brazil when the currency was incredibly expensive at 150 against the dollar. But you, you will make you know, the odd mistake here or there along the way. But I think broadly, we've got this right over 10 years. And then if I think about it, you mentioned uh, you've been managing money in emerging markets for a decade now. If you had a post-it note up on your desk reminding you of the key lessons that you've learned from a decade of investing in emerging markets, what what would that read? Well, I think it's been a learning experience, as it always is investing. I think anyone who believes that they know everything in investing is is in for a a rude awakening. Some things we've got really right along the years. I think our emphasis on generation of cash flow and making sure that earnings are backed up from cash flows has kept us out of some of the errors that- uh, You're talking about occurred. the accounting errors. Yes, accounting yeah. errors in many of the companies you've seen where you've had, uh, particularly in China, we've had many of the smaller businesses go under. You know, the, the biggest warning sign has been the inability of convert earnings into cash flow. And businesses that are growing very strongly often do need to absorb capital, but businesses that are growing at a mediocre rate, which do not generate cash, uh, generally are, are something that one should avoid. So I think that's been uh, one of the things we've got right over the years, but there have been lessons along the way. One I think that's worth noting is be careful of companies that are very dependent on a single product in a single country 
with a brand that might only have been around for a couple of years because whilst the secular growth prospects might be great, they can't uh, withstand uh, you know anything negative that happens in the short term because they're very dependent on that one product. Value traps and avoiding value traps uh, is something we've got right over the years as well. Not always, but definitely as time has passed, we've come to appreciate the importance of growing earnings. So I mentioned earlier with the Indian stocks, some that are trading on 30, 40, 50 times earnings might actually be worth owning if the earnings growth is very, very high and if earnings are well below normal. So we have become, I think, very good at identifying companies which have got fundamentally undervalued earnings streams and are able to grow that earnings stream at a very high rate into perpetuity. And then if you do need to pay a very high short-term rating for that business, uh, that's less important than the actual fair value you attach to the long-term earnings stream. Super. Thanks very much, Sahail. And and I mean, very much part of Coronation's experience in emerging markets is that we still continue to think of this as a good and key part of any investment strategy and long-term portfolio allocation. Stay tuned uh, for more in our Investment Outlook series, which is available via our podcast channel on the coronation.com website, our correspondent app, or you can download them directly from iTunes.